LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Kingsley Dennis, who joins us to discuss his recent book, Dawn of the Akashic Age. The world is changing. The transition from the mechanistic worldview to one that recognises the interconnectedness of all life is upon us. It is the dawning of the Akashic Age. The Akashic field that connects the universe is now recognised by cutting-edge science. What we know about communication, energy and consciousness is rapidly evolving in tandem with the new quantum worldview. Many adults are consciously evolving to meet the transitional challenges at hand, while today's youth have arrived already hardwired with the new consciousness. Rising from the ashes of the old systems, this phoenix generation of radical change agents is seeding our evolution and spiritual transformation, a process that will continue over the next few decades. Kingsley Dennis and co-author Irvin Laszlo look at the chief engine of the coming changes, that's the growing global understanding of non-locality, and the development of practical applications for it. They examine how the new values and new consciousness taking hold will reorganise society from top-down hierarchies into grassroots networks, like those revealed through quantum physics understanding of energy and information waves, and experienced daily by millions through social media. Hello and welcome Kingsley, and thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you, Greg. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Now, today, Kingsley, we're going to discuss uh, your book, recent book, uh, Dawn of the Akashic Age. Uh, subtitle is New Consciousness, Quantum Resonance and the Future of the World. And you've co-authored this with um, Irvin Laszlo, um, also with some guest contributions from various people, which we'll get to later. Before we get into this, perhaps you could just let us know, for people who aren't familiar with the term, what are you thinking about when you say the Akashic Age? That's right, Greg. Um, you, the term Akashic is quite broad in that perhaps most people have come across it in terms of the Akashic record and, and this type of context, which was, um, I suppose came out of the what we could call the New Age camp quite broadly. The way, the way we use it is going back to its original origin context, which was thousands of years ago, the Indian Rishis who were writing the, the leaders, in fact. So we're going back through uh, several millennia. They looked at the way um, the universe or reality or the cosmos was constructed. And we know of um, obviously the four elements, earth, air, fire, and water. Well, the Indian Rishis came up with a fifth element, which you know, I suppose in modern science, the nearest, nearest term is the ether or maybe the quantum vacuum, the Rishis called it the Akasha, which was the underlying fundamental energy 
of all reality. So earth, air, fire, and water, the four elements, or rather materiality, is the secondary construct, which comes from an underlying um, primary, let's say, energy. You can call it the, the quantum vacuum, the quantum energy, and they call it the Akasha. And so we thought that was appropriate, uh, one, because um, it goes back to the underlying connectivity of everything, and also it does connect with uh, the latest in quantum science, about how the world is quantumly entangled, and that's also a strong theme in the book, because we talk about how the latest in science can verify this entanglement or the connectivity that we talk about on many different levels. So it seemed a term which um, we wanted to bring back into more modern usage of science. Okay, now in the early part of the book, you set out kind of how we got where we are as a global society. And really in our, our modern age, kind of began to crystallize with the Industrial Revolution that shaped so much of the lives that we all have now. Not in all parts of the world, but in a great deal of it. And the 20th century then saw the dawning of the information era, particularly with computers and now the internet. And you're saying basically our destiny, our future, if we were to have one, is to evolve towards a truly planetary society. And that's something that's kind of in the balance right now, because we're facing a, many, many problems on many fronts globally. And despite what many people believe, we cannot rely simply on innovation and technology to get us through these problems and difficulties. Yeah, Greg, that's, um, that's the kind of issue we've tried to pick apart in the whole book. Um, you write in that the first couple of chapters, we looked, well, we gave a, a very broad overview of uh, how did Homo sapiens sapiens get to where we are. And you know, in fact, the term Homo sapiens sapiens means doubly wise or doubly knowledgeable. And, uh, you know, that came up uh, question there. So, you know, we looked at how really biological evolution, um, in terms of what we know of it, evolution itself is, is a contested uh, theory, is that what we do know is that there are many bifurcations along the way. And a bifurcation really is just a technical term, meaning a tipping point. So we get a, a point of crit criticality, and you know, we either can break through or some system, whether it's species systems or civilizational system can break through or it can break down. And that's basically the patterns of civilizations. They expand, they become more complex, they break down. So, boom, cut a long story short, uh, we get to really the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution because that's a point which is worth picking on because it's really the start of the whole globalization model. And that itself really needs to be picked apart, Greg. Now, the Industrial Revolution... About, let, let's take this, this, the, the second part of the Industrial Revolution. The first part really began in the 18th century. Um, but the second part began, of the second Industrial Revolution, began about the 1850s. So critically, we look at the last 150 years. Because what happened 150 years ago? Well, we discovered oil. Uh, I think uh, 1859 in Pennsylvania, if I'm correct. Um, so what oil did is basically gave us this ability to globalize. And so the way of life we have now is totally predicated based upon um, oil. And nobody can really deny that. And that's the, one of the crux of the crisis, is that we've had a whole global industry of major players, 
we now come to a point where most of the oil is run by what we call the Seven Sisters, which is the major oil conglomerates. So it's not only transport. You know, people think of oil, they think about what we put in our cars. No oil, we can't, we can't drive down you know, to see our friends, etc. Well, it's not only that, it's everything, more or less. All our domestic appliances, this computers we're using now to communicate, plastics is all based on oil, cosmetics. The food industry is totally based on oil with the fertilizers, just the packaging, the distribution, the whole list is to go from A to Z on oil. So that's, on one sense, has created the globalization model. And really, it hasn't benefited everyone because it's been also infiltrated by, by kind of neopolitics, especially what we call the Washington Consensus, which is a strongly based US foreign policy on the globalization model. So what it has allowed is it's allowed us to get to where we are now, and that is a stage of coming together across the globe. What it's also allowed is the rise of a, tech, a kind of technological base, i.e. computers and global technologies, which is connecting people together. And that's important because we're coming to a stage now where there's a possibility of moving towards a planetary society. The question is how? Because as you rightly said, we can't just go for purely based on technology or a, an agenda which can be a kind of neo-political global elite model. Because then we're not going to have a true planetary society. We're going to have what's been bandied around as a new world order, you know, modern day boards. And so this idea of a planetary society it's a very touchy subject because people may think, uh-oh, you're talking about just a, an authoritative or welly new world order as soon as you talk about planetary society. Well, in fact, that's not what we're talking about. And we're trying to pick that theme apart in the book because if we go to a new world order, then we're not going to have a sustainable, equitable or a long-term future. And that's the crux of the book. Greg. So you rightly say that the last 150 years has brought it to this point. It's a tipping point. Where do we go from here? Talking about evolution, do you think it's significant? And if so, how significant? Where we believe we came from, how we got here, the different ways of looking at the world, looking at reality, how important and significant that is to our view of where we're going, You know what the future can be and what it should be? That's a good question, Greg. Um, and evolution really is one of the prime perspective, let's say, because it's a worldview. How we view our past evolution is going to really be the foundation of how we view our future. And so, you know, the, the general consensus, and when, I'm, when I mean by consensus, I mean the, the um, orthodox scientific consensus, is that evolution is really um, basically a, a, a random accidental event, and from the primordial soup, we just had the arise of, of complex organisms and we had this Darwinian evolution by um, you know, genetic inheritance and, uh, and mutation, which brought us to where we are now, which more or less tells us that life on this planet is an accident. We are living on a rock hurtling through a dead space and you know there's no meaning to life. Well, if that's, if that's the general view, then you can't really criticize all these people by, who want to say, well, 
lives meaningless. We're here by accident. We've got to make the best of it. And therefore, humans have the right as a dominant species to basically take over the planet and um, mold it to their means. If, if evolution is that is your perspective, then you can kind of see where this grab all, every, every man for himself, if you get to the top, you deserve it type of mentality comes from. If you look at evolution, really, my own perspective, Greg, my personal perspective, is that the evolution um, really is also about the evolution of consciousness. And evolution of consciousness means that there's, a con there's an energy or intelligence of consciousness unfolding, and that's unfolding uh, through the uh, universe and unfolding upon this planet. So evolution can be a participatory model. That is, those of us who have self-awareness can participate in unfolding evolution by a, a conscious participation which means that we can co-create where we go from here. So we're not just an accident. You know, um, the great astrophysicist Fred Hoyle made the controversial statement that for life to have occurred on this planet is statistically the same as a hurricane blowing through a scrapyard and producing a bone in 747. Statistically, the complexity of life just doesn't make sense. And so for me, intelligent, conscious evolution makes sense. So if that's the case, then humanity, those of us who have awareness and really reflect upon our awareness, have a responsibility to co-create where we go from here because it's not an accident. And if we just stand back and say, well, let's just see where it goes randomly, we're pretty much doomed. So um, evolution, how we think of it, is important whether you're right. Oh, well, I certainly agree with you that I think consciousness, even if we don't understand it yet, is key. That's what my senses all five of them and all the rest, what they tell me. But it's interesting just speaking about the evolution survival of the fittest perspective and how that might influence people to see the world. If you go to the other obvious end of the scale to creationists, and I don't mean intelligent design here, but I mean old-fashioned Bible-thumping creationists, they have a similar, well, not a similar perspective, but a similar outcome in the sense that they've been put here, you know, all the rest of the creatures on Earth are here provided by God for our usage, uh, we're here to dominate them, and ultimately it doesn't matter because there's going to be some kind of rapture, some kind of end time, saviors coming back. So that is also quite a damaging perspective from the point of view of, you know, of the earth and our prospects for thriving on it. Yes, right. That's been a, a kind of a, a contention that's been difficult for people like me and you know, Evan Lazo and other people is that the world tends to have, create this duality, this either-or scenario. So as you say, it's either survival of the fittest um, Darwinianism. Um, of course, survival of the fittest came from Herbert Spencer and got attached to Darwin's theories. And then you have the other side, which is this creationism, and um, we all belong to God, and you know, things happen okay in the end, and we have the right to be here as custodians. And you have that view. And even other views that come into that, such as, we, we are connected to, um, let's say, intelligent life forms in, in the universe or other, other intelligent life, that gets put into duality mode because it also says, well, don't worry, because when we mess up, we'll be airlifted off by our intelligent friends, you know, the kind of uh, extraterrestrial version of the rapture. So whatever argument you put in it, there's this, there's this kind of energy in the world which I feel is, is kind of repressive against conscious evolution, and it tries to put things into this duality camp, either or. 
And, you know, it just doesn't work. And that's one of the, the mechanisms I think we spoke of before, the, re- the mechanisms which kind of hold us back because um, the powers that be or authority in the world and the social management loves this sense of duality, this either or, because it puts you in a, in a repressive camp. And the conscious evolution isn't about that, I think you'll agree. And I think that the way that we, more and more of us, are understanding the world and understanding ourselves, we're realizing that it doesn't fit into these artificial boxes, which are just a part of social conditioning. So the, the conversations we're having now and the conversations that we're going to have in the future between all the people who I think we run into or we, we're going to have conversations with is going to be about trying to get out of these boxes. You know, as I said to as I say to people, it's not about thinking out of the box because that that was the the old paradigm. It's about trying to think without a box now, because that's where we need to be. My reading of it, anyway, is that a lot of the great sort of existential dualities, both sides seem to have part of the truth, and it seems to be that they're they're failing to take that into account, and that over the ages that to take a classic one, you know, the science and spirituality thing, that, that they've actually converged at various points and then gradually diverged to be as far apart as possible. And then they converge again. And there's this sort of pattern that seems to appear. Um, I think we're probably at a, a time of convergence now, which in terms of your book and what you're talking about was actually a very positive development. Yeah, you just probably think of an old um, story, an Eastern story, whereby a, a truth seeker travels to find a, a wise sage or trying to find the wisest sage on the planet at the time. And uh, finally, after many years of seeking, he, he comes to what he is, feels is the, the wise sage. And when he's in the presence, he says to the wise sage, okay, I've come all this far now, please tell me what is truth. And the sage sits there in silence for a long, long time. And finally, the seeker realizes he's not going to get an answer, just storms out of the room angrily. One is out there, he, another, the deputy of the sage says to him, how dare you walk out like that so angry? And the seeker said, but he didn't give me an answer. And the deputy said, but of course he did. Silence was the answer. Why that comes to mind is because we're dealing in a world of words. And as you say, the, you know, there's different, the different streams of thought, and they seem to have a piece of the truth. Yet, really, I feel we can't really get to the truth unless we go through ourselves. Because when you have the truth, you can't really say it. You know, that's, that's where the silence comes from. Because it's dated to put into words. So I feel that we have maps about what's happening in the world now. We have maps, and that's what we're trying to do, for example, with the book we wrote, to give a kind of roadmap. But ultimately, nobody has the whole truth. And if anybody's looking for the whole truth, I think you only have to come through yourself. That's maybe a metaphysical response, but really, we don't have the truth, I don't have the truth, the book's just putting out a speculation of where we feel is the best possible roadmap at this time, but um, it's not the end and be all there, <laughs> I have to admit that. I've wondered from time to time if this duality could potentially, on a sort of ultimate level of ground of reality, could extend back to if there was an original being, an original creation, that the separation into to male and female, you know, as a embodied in the, the, the myth, of, if it is indeed a myth of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that there was a, a division occurred. And since then, so much of it, of uh, no, certainly our reality, our experience has been about this division. Yes, very much so. It's, 
I think we have to agree there is a division, a duality, a separation that we have to go through while we're in the material reality. And that can be on many levels. It, it can be between uh, the genders, uh, as you mentioned. Um, it, it can be between different ideologies, different viewpoints, different worldviews. The thing is, we are in such an environment of distraction that you know we need to try to wade through as much of this as possible and try to find out which elements can work with as maps, and then to put that map over ourselves to lay it on ourselves because we, we are our own filters, I feel. And we, we perhaps have that sense of origin within us, but you know, yeah, that's being separated through, through our, let's say, presence here in materiality. But I have a feeling that there's a part of us that has some contact with, let's say, the origin or, or the unity. And so that is like a, a, a detector which we have to then put upon what we come across in this life and see if it rings true. And I do feel that we have to start ringing our own alarm bells. So, um, you know, part of what is the problem at the moment is that there's so much distraction in the world, so much misinformation, so much of everything that we need to really um, get rid of that which doesn't work for us. Filter down what could work for us and then go through that, that lesser segment and see what really resonates with us. So, you know, that's what I try and do with information. And then I try to whittle that down and to consider that information and then put it out. So, you know, a kind of filtering mechanism for more the information. So it's, in the end, it's down to everybody to see what resonates with them. Now, returning to the so-called real world, life here on, on Earth has always been profoundly interconnected and interdependent. But the difference now, certainly in the 21st century, is that our human society that we've constructed is on top of the being profoundly interconnected and inter interdependent, it's extremely complex. And maybe not for the first time, but for the first time as far as we know, it's truly global. And that, that's a good basis to start from. It's a good model. Um, because, Greg, before I became you know, into the writing, I, I, was, I was traveling and teaching a lot, and I was teaching literature abroad. And I also spent many, many years, um, let's say, researching and being involved in what we call the wisdom traditions. And then I, I finally um, went into sociology, and I, I ended up um, doing a, a doctorate on, in sociology and also teaching sociology. And the reason I came into sociology was because I came in through um, systems theory and complexity theory. Because when I started looking into that, initially the work of Fridtjof Capra, and then Irvin Laszlo himself, I realized that systems theory actually was a very good model and it, it resonated a lot with what I had picked up through the wisdom traditions. There was a correlation. So I thought, well, this, this for me meant that there was a correlation and a way to put some of this information out through, let's say, the social sciences and through um, more orthodox information and to try and bring them together, the two worlds together. So I actually did my doctorate on complex systems and um, for those who don't know, Irvin Laszlo is the, the founder of system philosophy. The way we look at the world is looking at it through an interdependent, integral, complex system. That means that you know the environment, human systems, also human consciousness, they're all part of an entangled system. 
And so when you have imbalance as part of that system, then you have tipping points in certain areas. So that for us was the model, the starting point of looking at the world today. And it's a model that can integrate all these areas. Now the reason why uh, we feel this model is so critical today is because a system, if you have a breakdown in one area or two areas, just like the internet, if it breaks down in one or two areas, it can still carry on because the other, the other part of the network compensates. But what we saw and what we explained in, in the book is that when you have multiple tipping points, such as human systems and resources, in the energy, in the infrastructure, in the finances, in the, the way the global model is, in the politics, in human consciousness, when you have all those coming together and converging at around the same time, which is now, then the system really is under incredible stress. It's a time of vulnerability, a time of peak criticality, and that's when you get a, a tipping point. And that's the point of the book is we could go into a free fall in many systems breaking up together, or when a system is in a, a state of critical vulnerability, that's when you only need certain concentrated inputs to change the system into a new model. And so the whole point is if we can get certain new models and, and certain participatory consciousness from people coming in now, you don't need the multitude to make the change. All you need is enough qualitative of the minority. And that's the whole point. And that's the, I think, is a positive constructive side of, of uh, looking at the world through systems theory. Really. Yeah, no, I think this idea that you just mentioned about interdisciplinary trends, I think that's one of the really important things that we're seeing happening now is this is increasingly the aforementioned breakdown of the barrier between science and spirituality, but also at more ground levels, uh, you know, in science and research and education and learning. And I think that's a really important thing to be encouraged for the future, because it's one of the things that has held us back and caused so many problems has been pigeonholing and physicists not able to do biology because you know biologists have to do that and mathematicians not able to do physics and vice versa and, and artists not able to do chemistry because that's for chemists and I think mm -hmm. if you get rid of all those artificial boundaries it's not going to be chaos I think it can be a great synthesis of things um, that can point the way forward and a lot of the greatest discoveries in the past have been made by people who were outside their professional disciplines. I couldn't agree with you more, Greg, and I have personal experience with that because when I was doing my PhD, my doctorate in sociology, I was bringing in quantum physics and quantum biology into their thesis, and that, you know, I had to really fight for that. Literally, I was in a fairly liberal institution, but what, what, that, what that kind of uh, um, shows is really what we were talking about, the old model being a, a kind of top-down, vertical, authoritative model. And it's what we, we know also uh, in modern terms as compartmentalization. And that's the way politics has worked, and that's the way often politics maintains secrets, is that you know nobody knows what the person next to them is doing because you only need to know basis. You know, it's like the 33 degrees of Mason. They work on a similar ancillary system, and that's a system is that you keep to what you know, and that helps you know social management. And that helps to keep uh, knowledge on a kind of consensus level. Very interesting because the model that we're saying that's arising, especially through um, the way that, that we have this, this global interconnectivity, is a more horizontal model of the distributed decentralized model, where people can connect together and share. For example, 
the inventor and scientist Tesla. And he was actually ruined by, um, by government and, uh, and the establishment. And he couldn't get any funding unless it came through uh, the establishment and funding. Because, and he had very difficult to connect with other scientists because there was no, you know, every one of those days was the lone inventor. Now, now in fact, there's, there's, um, this has been written about um, by scientists. They, they, they call it um, distributed science, whereby science now is not just done by one or two people in a lab, but they are connected with other scientists across the world to try to work on problems faster. And not only are they connecting with other scientists, but some of them are actually opening their problems to amateur scientists, DIY scientists, because many minds are better than one. So just as if you have distributed computing, um, where you, you know, you open, you ask for people to allow their computers to be used when they're in off mode to use more computing power, it's the same thing with the human mind, because the greatest computers on the planet, the greatest resource on the planet are the human mind. And the human being. So if you can connect them together, then you have you know, an immense resource. And you know that's what's happening now across the world is that we're having distributed assistance. And that's been also known as um, disruptive innovation. Because innovation which used to be centralized, funded by one or two corporate bodies, and highly controlled, so they could get the end product they want and they could control the distribution. And that's the way many systems have worked. That's the way the energy, the oil monopoly works. They control the, the drilling, the, the distribution, the end product. And so that's the central model. Now, with a decentralized model, you have many people working together, sharing their ideas, and also allowing a, um, you know, a free flow of, let's say, there's no patent, there's no copyright, and when something's finished, it's given out. And so that model really is going to be very disruptive to centralized models. Uh, you know, in the book, we looked at many areas that are coming up, not only science, but education as well, which is what you picked up on um, with, you know, these multi-online uh, courses. The Khan Academy is one, many free courses, you know, access. And just to finish there, Greg, um, what we also picked up on is that there's going to be a huge rise in people coming online in the next decade. In fact, perhaps uh, a billion more minds coming online. But where are they going to be coming from? They're not going to be coming from the West because most of the West is already connected to a large degree. They're going to be coming from the developing world. Developing world of young minds with greater necessity, more inclined to out, uh, without a box, disruptive innovation, trying to solve problems which they need and which the West perhaps isn't solving. Now, that is going to be a good indicator of distributed, disruptive innovation coming up. Just pick up on something in the first part of what you were saying, where I think 15,000 years, as you point out in the book, or thereabouts since the end of the Ice Age, and there's been rapid, if uneven, development since then. But in the next few decades in particular, and leading up from now to 2050, the changes are going to be exponential, not just in terms of technology either. And in that, there's going to be opportunities and benefits. And that's one of the main threads running throughout the book as well. Is like, what are we going to make of these opportunities and these challenges? And yeah, and what is so critical about this time, I would say, is a kind of massification. That's people coming together 
like never before and connecting on an unprecedented scale. So if you go back to, you know, the, the, the um, let's say after the Ice Age between 12 and 15,000 years ago and the rise of, well, so the recorded history rise of civilization in the Levant and the Fertile Crescent, then look at that, you have the increase of complexity, you know, the early tribes, uh, then, you know, agriculture, domestication, etc., then city-states, and you had the increasing complexity. But what's been happening is really is that people have been in their little bubbles, in their little city-states, or the empires were just bubble empires because they were about conquest and domination and not wanting to connect with other people around the world. What's happening now is that we have this kind of um, point where we can take the old model and have a global country empire which really wants to stop people from having the power and control in their hands that's the that's the kind of authoritarian model or we're at a, a tipping point where this massification can go towards the masses and so the masses because they're connected they then can take innovation forward so innovation doesn't have to be centralized it can be it can be coming up from the masses and when you have these billions of people on the planet, and then increasingly most of them connected, you're going to have unprecedented, let's say, development. And that doesn't have to be technological only, I think it's going to come through participatory consciousness. And interestingly, when you talk about that, um, there was a, a, a book written by a, a Stanford anthropologist, historian, sociologist, um, kind of man of all um, skills called Ian Morris. The book was called Why the West Rules for Now. And I, I mentioned that because he looked at this developmental process and he used his own kind of anthropological scale to look at it. And what he was saying was looking at the scale of this development, we are coming to a point where the next, um, in fact, this century, the next few decades in this century, if we go in the way we're going to go, we are going to basically moving to a time of unparalleled, unprecedented exponential development. Look, obviously, the question is, what fuels that development? And I would say, rather than that being just a technological, unconscious exponential development, i.e. the technological singularity, um, we need it to be a co-creative exponential development through the participation of self-reflective and energize people making that making this exponential change go in the way that we need it to go i.e a equitable sustainable long-term future for life on this planet and an integral life including all living systems as well so the point is not just exponential change but what is the drive of that change for yeah i mean in that context looking at all the the global systems, increasing number of them actually facing critical instability and the possibility of collapse. This trend that you see in, in some circles, whether it's with countries of isolationism or individuals withdrawing, that's that's not really going to help. Uh, we've already addressed the fact that we're not talking about some sort of, you know, Orwellian New World Order. Nobody wants that, It'd just be a, a, a nightmare. But similarly, everyone pulling back, and we'll talk about the rise of localism in a minute, but sort of bugging out and that survivalist mentality isn't going to get us where we need to be either. Yeah, so right. And, and that survival mentality, it's so easy to click back on that because what's the greatest trigger to catalyze survival mentality is fear. And, you know, and fear has been used really as a, as a ruling mechanism uh, since the dawn of civilization. We can go back to 
you know, the old priestly castes use fear to, to rule on a kind of religious basis. And then, you know, you go through civilization, they use fear, they use propaganda, and we have a very fearful state of the world now. Um, and if you look at our mainstream news, it does talk so fear-based. But if you look beyond and behind that, and what's coming out through through new media and, and, and community media and people-centric media is the constructive change. Because people, especially younger generations, they don't want war. They don't want to, um, to kind of close their fences and go into gated communities or gated nations, which is what you, know, what you referenced there with this um, tribal localism. And so really but their voices, this we don't want war, we want to reach out, isn't always reaching, uh, it's definitely not reaching the mainstream media. And that's what's important. Um, but it's on the rise and it's coming through the networks. And so people are using social media, using distributed uh, channels to get this message across is that going back into your shell, every man for himself, every person for themselves is going, is not going to work for anybody because it's going to just close down the world. And then, of course, we're going into a state now where no country is self-sustainable because no country has the resources to continue as they are. And it's very interesting because if you look at how resources are spread, it's almost like a human body in that every every limb of the of the planet has something which another limb requires. So, you know, for example, China has rare earth metals, but doesn't um, doesn't have any enough uh, water or or food or um, energy for itself. You know, the energy oil rich nations like Saudi Arabia, etc., don't you know have to import food and, and water as well. And, you know, and then, of course, you look at other countries and some developing countries have a great amount of food resource, um, but not energy or engineering um, structures, uh, earth metals, etc. So there has to be uh, an inter-exchange. So if we close down the borders, it's going to be a kind of uh, like sending out your, your armies to conquer the resource and bring it back into, into, the, into the gated castle. That really is just going to clap the whole system. So I think there are, there are a lot of people in high places, whether it's the United Nations or politics or non-governmental bodies, that do understand this. You know, it's not just people speaking between themselves. There are, other, there are people who are major players, but they're fighting still a struggling system. And anyone with a bit of common sense really knows that the only way forward is inter-exchange, integral, equitable global model, because otherwise we're just going to see collapse uh, happening on, on large scale in pockets around the world. Your characterization there of the human global society is like operating like one body. That's reminiscent of Dr. Bruce Lipton's idea of, you know, all the cells in the body, um, in the human body being like a global community in a way. And of course, his work and other people's, a lot of the new sciences, quantum physics, quantum mechanics, and you are able to map that onto the ideas in your book, hence the, the, the phrase quantum resonance in the book title. Now, the key word which we picked up on earlier, Greg, and you mentioned it, is convergence. And that's what's happening now. And the convergence is is really, you know, the, 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 the key word for this epoch that we're moving into now. And what we've seen is that a lot of these fields, such as new sciences, quantum physics, and quantum biology, they are validating 
this sense of integralness, in, or to use their word, entanglement. And so, and then you have quantum biology, you have the work of Bruce Lipton and others, which talk about the, the interconnectivity of the cells, the, the biophotonic nature of, of cellular resonance and DNA resonance, and so how the body is synchronized on a biological level, how each body, each human body, then gives off a, a quantum field uh, around itself, which connects with other bodies, which then could connect with the work of Rupert Sheldrake and his uh, morphic resonance hypothesis. Um, that completely ties into um, the latest essay in quantum physics about non-locality, and also not only on a, on a micro scale of quantum entanglement in the body, but macro scale, the whole cosmos being quantum entangled, this is all coming together, and really what we see is that our physical systems, our physical infrastructures are a, uh, an external reflection of that, what I call a blueprint of an external blueprint of what's already happening internally on a micro scale. So all we need to do is start bringing these dots together. If we don't have it now, we're going to have it pretty soon, this aha moment, this eureka moment, whereby we're going to have this, hey, come on, people, we really are fundamentally connected on all possible levels, cosmic, quantum, biological, physical, infrastructural, global, environmental, consciousness, you know, at that point, you're really going to have to be living with your head in the sand to not get it. And so, you know, what we need is that convergence to start becoming more part of the um, public conversation. So it's not part of any esoteric dialogue or alternative dialogue. It becomes part of the consensus dialogue so we can move from being an anomaly to being the way forward. Oh, I mean, I'm constantly telling people uh, if they'll listen to to dive into um, quantum physics for themselves. There's so many accessible books and so many uh, layman-friendly speakers and researchers out there on this topic now, because you know we're still wrestling with the, you know, that science and spirituality duality that we spoke about earlier. And you know we've got the, the Church of Scientism, the re religion of materialism, which has been so destructive. It's brought many benefits, but it's not the be-all and end-all. As we said earlier, it's got part of the answer. And I think that if the new science can, if the, some of the implications of that, which are only beginning to emerge, if those can be grasped, that really can be a game changer in the way we think about ourselves and about wider reality. And that's the reason why, in fact, um, Irvin and myself, that's what drew us together and brought us to work together, because I recognized Irvin's um, background and the way he wonderfully explains um, the system philosophy, but he's, he's a self-taught physicist, I mean, he's a self-taught in many areas, self-taught um, child prodigy at the piano. And uh, so he understands and explains quantum physics extremely clear and well, in, in, as I feel. He has a background in, in philosophy as well. And then my background in looking at uh, social systems and how the, uh, the social models and our joint interest in, in consciousness as well, um, that what brought us together. And so in fact, the first book we worked on, we edited a volume called The New Science Spirituality Reader, which in, in fact included an essay from uh, Bruce Lipton and many others as well, because we wanted to create a dialogue where we brought scientists and those working in the spiritual field together to create a new dialogue where we could converge science and spirituality together. And then from that, we decided to, to further our, our work together to create this book, Dawn of the Akashi Cage, where we could take it even further and discuss at length some of the 
the uh, converging trends coming down the line in education, in, in many social systems, and where people are working, and in consciousness, and, and the new value systems, and really to see, in, say, in new sciences, and see how all this is coming together, and can we look, can we create a pattern, a model that will work? And that, that's really been, you know, the, the reason for us coming together, as you say, is this convergent model, and science spirituality is one side of that, but to bring it into layman's terms, so we can bring it into a term where we talk about how this has implication for the social model. It's not just for airheads, you know, sitting in a bubble wanting to um, read about this in, you know, in a kind of academic way or, you know, in the ivory tower. This does have, it does have resonance for people in the everyday world. And I think that's an important point is we can all talk about this. It's a public dialogue. You know, we don't have to speak in high, high convoluted terms, Greg. We'll just speak like we are speaking now. Well, as far as people's attitudes go, I certainly see amongst people I know and even people I don't particularly know well and in, in groups out there, uh, certainly there is a shift in, in values and beliefs and, and certainly in priorities. And it's, it's happening across the board. It, younger people tending to sort of arrive without the, the baggage that you and I and, and you know our parents and grandparents' generation would have had. And people are certainly questioning what is now old and outdated and what's not working for them, both personally and also at a macro level and you know you certainly deal with that issue in the book and also the wider cultural beliefs and uh, you list some of them uh, you actually call them lethal and they really are the sort of cornerstones of you know that the problems that we're facing how we got where we are if i'll just give people the, the list the idea that nature is inexhaustible the concept of social darwinism the concept of market fundamentalism consumerism in itself which also applies particularly at a personal level and then militarism as a way of doing politics, basically, with, with you know, when politics is failed. Yeah, you know, and those list of the, the lethal values are really, you know, in a sense, we're talking or trying to address those who need deconditioning, those people who probably, like ourselves and an order, have been, you know, brought up in this type of way of thinking that, you know, we need a social Darwinism and market fundamentalism does work and, you know, the, the neoliberal kind of free market economy, it works. We have to decondition ourselves out of that by looking at the information and educating or re-educating ourselves. So that information in the book is, you know, really for that part of the process of, of trying to rethink anew. And, you know, you said something very important just there, Greg, is that a lot of the younger generation, younger people, they're coming in without the baggage. They're coming in more like a blank slate. So, you know, they don't need the deconditioning, but they are looking for ideas. You know, they want to be inspired, not to be thrown into a, a four-walled classroom and told to rote learn this this out of, you know, this archaic uh, curriculums that were developed for the Industrial Revolution workhouses. They don't want that education. So they want a vision. And so that's why part of the, you know, later in the book, it was important that we looked at inspiring, constructive, potential, positive future visions uh, that could catalyze people, and especially younger people, into thinking, what can they do? So, you know, the book is looking at the whole range. Uh, as you rightly say, there's one conversation is to say, these things don't work, but we need to tell you, you know, what isn't working, and we need to show you they're not working. And that could be seen as a bit kind of negative because we've shown a lot of, you know, a lot of failing systems. And then we go into, of course, the constructive part where we're trying to give a, a blueprint for what can work. And we even took it a step further, which was, you know, some people may call us naive, but we went forward and said, 
let's try and construct a 2030 uh, imaginative scenario of how could life be in 2030 and give a vision of that, which was, you know, and we made a choice to make it the positive vision of the 2030. Again, as a, as a kind of catalyst to inspire people to say, well, this is where we could be going if we put our minds to minds and hearts to it. So, you know, this, it's a whole range, and, and I think it's important to inspire younger readers who just say, look, what can we do in the world? Yeah, well, certainly at the minute, whether it's not so much in the mainstream, they, they do sort of go both ways in the mainstream, but certainly in the alternative media, that in terms of a vision for the future, the crises being faced in the areas, the key areas of energy, environment, economy, it's very much being covered of like this could go either way. You know, you can you can look at it as glass half full or half empty. Uh, it's a bit like what we said earlier. I suppose there's challenges and there's opportunities, and it's not encouraging to see increasing inequality around the world in terms of you know you know access to resources and just basic standards of living. But there is this feeling that these inoperable, outdated models are coming to an end, and if anything's going to replace them, it you know it will be something better because. The sort of option we described earlier about this totalitarian model of control—that's not sustainable either. I mean, that that would just that, that would fall. That would go exactly the same way because it would just be a modified version of what we already have. That's it. And you know, again, it's just trying to get out this either-or scenario. Is that you know we have to be realistic. And although we know the old models are not functional no longer, um, they did get us here. But we, you know, we're not going to we're not going to wake up tomorrow and the end of all is going to be over. You know, not going to stop drilling overnight and say, hey, the all's finished. Um, okay, that's all done with. It's not going to happen. And if it did happen, there'd be complete anarchy across the world and the world would collapse. So it's not going to be stopped right now. Nor are we going to wake up tomorrow and then you know we're going to have this um, you know free energy available. Hey guys, you know free energy was always there and it's ready now because that's not going to happen overnight. And when we do come across a new energy source, whether it's a form of free energy, you have to realize, well, A, how are we going to make that available to be distributed across the world in a fair, equitable way? Do we have the infrastructure to be able to um, tap into free energy and make it available on a consumer, individual, household level? You know, and then how do we replace uh, this new energy source into a lifestyle which is being predicated on oil? How do we replace it? for creating plastics, cosmetics, fertilizers, food systems. So these questions are very large. As you rightly said, the shift is going to be something which works better because we don't have a choice. It has to be worked better if we're going to go towards a long-term future. But this is a pattern. This is, we haven't arrived here for the first time, Greg. Several centuries ago, centuries ago in Europe, we had, um, we had a world revolution because um, all the water mills and, and uh, windmills, there were lots of windmills across Europe um, hundreds of years ago, and all the construction was based on wood. And then there were, there were, there were cries that um, everything's going to collapse because we, you know, we're not gonna, we're going to be able to chop down wood at the same rate we're um, doing now, because they chopped down so many forests in Europe. They had what we call the peak wood scare. Um, what happened was that coal was discovered. And then through coal, eventually you had the the creation of the um, the steam motor to help dig out coal. And then you had the steam power, and eventually you you were moving to oil. So at at kind of peak moments or or moments of development, there happens to appear a new energy source. Now 
if you look around, if you if you investigate what's happening in the world today, there's there's just untold number of people, especially young, intelligent, innovative people, looking into new energy sources all the time. Whether it's a water-based energy source, some hydrogen-based energy source, some um, you know a mixture of all different types of energy sources. Now, there's no one panacea at the moment. So I think what we're going to see is that as we go into a, a more energy constricted world, they're going to be arising many different energy alternatives which are going to be coming up, being developed, and are going to take us into a stage where we can have a more predominant uh, new energy model. But, you know, innovation and, um, you know, I would say necessity is the invention, is another invention, and that is going to come about. Now, of course, access to energy, you know, is incredibly uneven across the globe. It's one of the main sources of conflict, if not the main source. And some sort of radical redistribution is called for. And here I want to address just one of the key objections. It comes up in, in various forms from people I talk to. But And I, I understand this. When we talk about some of these ideas, is they smell socialism or even communism, that people are going to be forced to give up things so that other people can get them. And then they want to know who makes the decisions, who's, who gains, who loses it, who's in the ivory tower saying, you know, pulling levers. It brings to mind, you know, the zeitgeist movement, which for all its the positive things they're trying to do seems technocratic and cold and, and is still monolithic and centralized. So it's wondering how we can get across this concept, how we can begin to formulate a vision that goes beyond the old ideas of forced radical redistribution and people being allotted things and everything that comes from that. That's a good question, Greg. And, and you are right. Is that you know we can um, a lot of models being put forward now. They very easily could slip into this. Um, you say whether socialist communism or, or very much an authoritarian model, um, which m most of the great ideologies did slip into. Um, so, for example. You know, in the book we talk about um, the distributed uh, energy grids because that's happening now because we know that centralized energy grids are not that efficient and of course if there's a shortage or some fault it affects the grids all over. So um, the industry has been, been, been uh, pulling out decentralized energy grids um, as a part of a new model and as part of that you know the plan is to bring in new let's say smart meters to people's homes. Now I'm very aware that smart meters smacks of, you know, um, the Borg, Big Brother, New World Order. If your house is metered, then, you know, you have no control. Um, but what I tend to see, I see it more as a kind of stepping stone. Now, I see that what's happening with the new mode of technology is like a Trojan horse. It's on our side and we, you know, uh, we're pushing it in, into the castle of our enemies because same thing as the internet. The internet was created as a model to uh, for the military to circumvent a nuclear war. Of course, where is it now? Mostly it's in the hands of of uh, people of the world, mostly, and, and innovators, disruptive innovators. So when we have new energy sources coming up, and even localized energy sources, there may also there may be the grids in place, the infrastructure in place to utilize them for the new energy sources. I, in, in other words. When something comes around which will be the new model and to be able to be utilized for the benefit of a more equitable society, then they can hijack the infrastructure that's in place and use that because that will be more in keeping. 
run because I don't think we're going to be in a, in a state where um, the people can develop a whole global infrastructure amongst themselves. I think it's a point where the people are needing to hijack the infrastructure and turn it towards their ends. And, and I think that's the model that we're going to see, Greg. And if it doesn't come to that, if it comes to a point where new localized models are emerging, new energy sources are emerging, but the top-down governments are going to say, no, we're going to keep a hold of that, we're going to control it, then you're going to get a revolution. You're going to get people who are not going to stand for it. We've seen instances around the world where people aren't standing for increased food prices in the Middle East or where governments or people aren't standing for the financial system, but that's happening in, in global pockets. If we get to a point where we're having new global energies arriving and we have infrastructure to distribute that and still those in power say no, then the massification of, of people connected around the world are going to not take it. And that's, I think that's the point where we're not going to have socialism or communism. Really. I think uh, your phrase was local hubs within global networks, um, which sounds a lot like the internet, of course. And I mentioned earlier the word localism and the rise of that. And we're seeing a lot of positive developments along those lines now in terms of you know local food production and distribution, local energy generation, um, local currencies, many of which do function within you know a larger network. And I think a lot of the ideas being brought forth by the, the permaculture movement apply here. And as you say, it's a way of you have that local control at different levels, for sure, you know, right down to household. Maybe it's, you know, within uh, city walls, maybe it's within a county or whatever. But various degrees of localism, localism where appropriate, provide security on all sorts of levels. And also that reassurance that having control over your own day to day life. That's right. And, and that's why, again, we don't you know, we're not living in a well, we don't need to live and we shouldn't live in an you know, either or world. So it's either the localized model, where we talked about earlier, the contraction, or just the globalized model. You know, in our, in our understanding, in our language, a planetary society is one which is unified, but it is totally diverse and respects and strengthens that diversity, and in fact even encourages diversity. So we're, we're connected as a planetary species, we respect each other, we realize that another person's difficulty or crisis is our own crisis. We work to alleviate that. But, you know, we celebrate our sense of place as well. And so there are some people who are worried that the planetary model is going to take away your, their nationalism. Now, I've heard that, that kind of response. And we're saying, well, no, because being diverse means that it celebrates your sense of place because a planetary model means you look at what's sustainable in your local area. Now, why, why do we need a model whereby we ship food or fresh strawberries around the world to a place which they don't have strawberries? You know, we don't want to, you know, to spray our food and to package it and send it around the world. What we need to do is look at what's the most efficient and available in our local area and to develop a structure around that, which not only gives, you know, strengthens the local community, it strengthens local well-being, it also strengthens local employment and local action. You know, and, and local participation. So, you know, as you mentioned, we could have the permaculture models, we can look at local energy schemes, local community building models, local uh, um, local living models of how to construct uh, living quarters um, which are more amenable to living and working in a local area, not having these great um, uh, long distance commutes. So, 
really enhancing the local model, but at the same time being connected through our communication on a planetary level, bringing those things we do need on, on a global level, and a lot of being connected on a, on a knowledge-based global level, and also communicating with those and, and assisting around the world, as, as I mentioned, distributed assistance. So it's, it's a bit of everything. It's, it's using the local resources on a sustainable, integral, equitable way, which is, enhances people's sense of place, while at the same time enhances people's responsibility as a planetary, equitable society. My favourite piece of inappropriate food distribution was at Christmas here in England, finding in the supermarket Brussels sprouts from Australia. <laughs> and it was if, if there was ever anything more suited to be grown in, in this damp drizzle, you know, it would be Brussels sprouts. But no, they, they brought them from Australia. I mean, that is the one thing I thought, yeah, likewise, that, that Britain grows very well is Brussels sprouts, especially at Christmas. And, and probably you'd find, though, that it was cheaper to import them from Australia than to grow them in England, because that's been happening. A lot of food companies have been taking their companies outside of England and actually importing food, importing foreign workers, and then exporting it into England because it's cheaper than doing it with inland with the food and workers inland because they are constrained to an, an economic model which forces them to to go for the cheapest, lowest common denominator because the market is based on exponential growth or perpetual growth. It is crazy, incredibly crazy. Yeah, well, in terms of new energy production methods and new energy models coming through, there doesn't really seem to be anything, and this is one of the things that the politicians are struggling with at the minute, that seems to be coming down the line to provide the sort of levels of energy that we use globally. Now facing the idea we might have to use less. You know, there's some nods being made to the idea of people having solar panels on their roof and just trying to drive hybrid cars or whatever. But the reality may be that fracking and tar sands and all that filth notwithstanding, that we may have to use less energy. But whether it's in terms of the commute that you mentioned a couple of moments ago or whether it's bringing Brussels sprouts uh, into Europe from Australia... There's one thing that I see when I go out, just have to walk out the door every day, that we do so much traveling that by one stretch or another seems unnecessary. And I'm not anti-travel. I'm not, you know, I'm not sort of John Zerzan or something. If you want to go on holiday to Australia, fine, whatever. If that's doable, fantastic. If you want to go around the world trekking, great. But it does seem that a lot of us spend a lot of time traveling unnecessary, whether it's commuting or whether it's transporting goods across the globe. I mean, for another statistic that I had recently was that Germany exports almost exactly the same volume of potatoes to England as England exports to Germany, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we are living in an upside-down reality. That's a good point. And I do sense that um, we are going to shift to a more constricted energy world. And I mean, I talk about this a lot in a personal sense. I feel that people are going to really have to look at their lifestyles and their priorities and downsize. And you know, I don't, I don't, I don't say that as a, you know, um, you know, wagging my finger at people. But I did it myself. I moved out of an urban environment. I moved to a very rural area. I grow my own vegetables. I, I work and plow my land. I have fruit trees, and I use minimal resources. And I travel much less, is that I do virtually all my uh, interviews, conversations, meetings uh, through Skype and through internet. And, you know, in this way, I only travel when necessary. I feel a better quality of life by downsizing. And 
I'm speaking with a lot of other people and they're getting a similar notion in their heads is that, you know, the, the model that we were living on, and it's been called a model of perpetual growth, which is our economic model, it's basically conditioned us to live in an environment which is just luxurious, too luxurious, too commodified, and we live in really outside of our means, most of us, especially those in the high-developed industrialized Western nations. So really downsizing is like, you know, it's time to prune ourselves, just as we prune our trees in autumn, winter. We need to do that and put ourselves back a bit. And that's necessary because if we don't, we may find ourselves coming into some bigger shocks because, you know, if we're, if we're tied into some unsustainable credit systems, our credit cards, uh, we're tied into a job which we may not, we can't afford to lose, um, we've got too many outgoings. You know, I speak with some friends who live in the UK and they earn a lot of money, but they're not making any more than I am and I'm making virtually nothing because their outgoings are the same as their income. So the question is, Look at yourself. If your outgoing is the same as your income, and do you have a quality of life? Do you have well-being? If not, there's something wrong with that equation. And so I think that's an equation we have to look at personally in our lives because the world is going to have to go through a similar phase of constriction and downsizing, and that's going to affect uh, people who are living overabundant lifestyles. Now, towards the end of the book, uh, Kingsley, you do a sort of a fast-forward to 2030 and look, have a look at the world that could be. And it's not a utopia by any means. Those have long envisioned and hoped for will never arrive. You again look at the this in terms of energy environments and the economy and how things could pan out. And in many ways, the direction we're currently going in, it's not good. But as we've been discussing, where we can go from, from there, that point when things do start to come on, uh, unstuck, that's for us to choose. That's right, and you know we could have done a really Pollyanna world at 2013, you know, everything's happy and slappy clappy. Um, we, we didn't want to do that, and nor, as I mentioned before, do we want to go to the extreme and really look at all the problems that we are facing. What we need to do is look at the problems and see where the key areas and look at what's potentially constructive and positive around that in the future. And so, um, just to give a, you know, some of the areas we looked at, not in depth, because really we felt that if we did it too in-depth, we would miss the point and we'd just end up trying to tell the world what we think should be. If we can give some, some ideas and just some visions, then it's still an open scenario. So we wrote just basically you know, some brief paragraphs on such sections as the new patterns of living, demographics, education, politics and energy and, and money, and, and then just give you know, a brief look at what potentially could be around then 2030, but from a constructive positive slant. And then really, the whole point was to make that a springboard for people to make them think their own ideas and take it from there. You know, I think the worst thing you can do when, when future forecasting is setting something in stone. Basically, then what you're doing is, is just you know dictating to people what you think is your view, and that's it. And so that's not the point, is it? I do feel that they are positive viewpoints in 2030, the patterns of living are things I've talked about now, um, you know, moving to a le from less urbanized environments to more locally sustainable rural community environments. I think the community is going to be increasingly more important, and that shift the demographics as well. And education, you know, I think is going to be a, a more broader access, especially with these massive online open access um, 
free courses online. But really, it's going to come down to the point of what we co-create between ourselves. And that's why I think the community is going to be important because we can, we have the resources to co-create on that level. And, um, and the main thing, which is why we ended the book on a chapter called The Pillars of New Consciousness, the main thing, the bottom line is, if you don't change your consciousness, you're not going to change anything effectively in the real, in the, in the external world. So whatever we talk about, the end statement is we need a change of consciousness. Well, Kingsley, your book, once again, uh, Dawn of the Akashic Age, that's co-authored with Irvin Laszlo. That's available everywhere, um, presumably from your website. So perhaps you'd like to tell people about getting the book other information on your website, lots of resources there for people. And also we should just mention, uh, as I did at the outset in closing, that the book has contributions from a number of other um, noted authors in this area as well, doesn't it? Yeah, Greg, it does, thank you. And we wanted to, again, reach out for other people's ideas. So we invited some notable such as uh, Charles Eisenstein, the author and uh, the speaker on the Center uh, Economics, um, John L. Peterson, who runs the Island Institute and is, a, for me, a, a very well-rounded future thinker. We had Hazel Henderson, who's been uh, uh, the, the bastion voice on new economics for like three decades now. She's a wonderful uh, visionary. We have Marco Roveda, who's a wonderful entrepreneur who sets up many NGOs um, to help people around the world. Um, you know, we had uh, Tomoyo Nonaka, who... Is, uh, was the CEO of Sanyo in Japan and also an, an anchor woman on, on television and uh, a, a kind of gay environmental activist. We had a whole broad range of people. So the whole point really is to engage people in a broad perspective. And so not just, it's not a one person club now, it's a planetary club. Um, so you know, if people wish to read more, I have a whole load of downloadable um, articles and, and, and resources on my website, which is just, well, just Google my name, Kingsley Dennis, because it's, uh, it's kingsleydennis.com, and there's uh, videos there, I said there's resources, books, and, um, and really, um, people, my, my bottom line to people would, would be, don't take my word for educate yourselves, and um, take what you can from me, and, and go away and uh, resource and research yourself. Excellent. Well, Kingsley, thank you so much for joining us again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you, Greg. It's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Well, folks, that's it for another week. As ever, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please check out the website. That's LegalizeFreedom.com, Legalize-Freedom.com, where you'll find an archive of programs offering alternative views on a wide range of topics, including world affairs, politics and economics, science and technology, religion and spirituality, conspiracy, and alternative history. You can also browse and buy a range of books and DVDs from our guests, and if you're feeling generous, make a donation to help keep the site up and running. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com.